Yep. Give you the meeting? Yep. All right. Father, thanks for our brother Stephen uh, as he uh, preaches to us now. We ask that you give us receptive ears uh, to hear from him and to hear from you. Amen. Thank you, Phil. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Yeah, we are studying together Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. And in our studies, we're up to chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins with a summary statement. Um, As we move through the passage, I'm going to present, as I do occasionally, my own uh, translation. Um, uh, If you'll forgive me, um, it's because I'm a show-off and a girly swat. Um, uh, or, or rather, it's uh, because uh, the NIV Pew Bible, which you have in your hands, is, is a very good translation, which I recommend and I think is excellent. But its job is to translate from excellent Greek into excellent English. My job is to translate from excellent Greek into bad English, so that you can kind of see what's there and have as a, an additional tool for um, comparison. So I encourage you to follow along. Uh, in your pew Bibles, page 787. Um, And here we go, verse 1. Be careful not to do your righteous things in front of the people in order to be seen by them. Surely if you did, you are having no reward with your Father in heaven. Um, Righteous things. Jesus has in mind that his people will have distinct religious practices, spiritual disciplines, religious acts, acts of piety, religious duties, if you like, good deeds. There are um, many different ways of translating the phrase into, across the different English translations. The godly things that godly people do. And Jesus will now speak on three of them, giving to the needy, prayer, and lastly, fasting. These three things were considered in Jesus' day to be the pillars of Judaism, so to speak, the three fundamental practices that first century Jews considered to be the foundation of their faith with respect to religious practice. Jesus assumes that his disciples will do these things. What isn't assumed is that they know how to do these things. Um, We can also safely assume that this list of three things is not an exhaustive list of spiritual disciplines, Jesus, for example, assumes elsewhere that his disciples will meet together as church, read the Holy Scriptures, pray, sing psalms and spiritual songs, etc., etc. So it's not an exhaustive list, but with respect to all such things, there is a fundamental lesson to be learnt. Do not do such things in front of the people in order so as to be seen by them. And This may legitimately actually confuse us because we've only just read back in chapter 5, verse 16, another imperative, another command from Jesus, which, as you may remember, read, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So then, Uh, When it comes to being a conspicuous do-gooder, Jesus seems to command it in one place, condemn it in another. Well, in fact, there is no discrepancy. Both teachings are the two sides of the same coin, that coin being a life devoted to the glory of God. 
If we live out the commands of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, if we do that, we will fulfill the desire of our Father in heaven, which is that we live differently, conspicuously, obviously differently to the people around us. In one place, chapter 5, Jesus gives us the courage to be different, reminding us that that is the whole reason for our creation as a people. That God is calling out a people to belong to him, the new covenant people of God, Israel in Christ, salt and light in the world, giving us the courage to show when we'll be tempted to hide. And in, now in the second place, chapter 6, Jesus teaches us to beware of the temptation of doing things for our own glory and the hypocrisy of that warning us to hide when we'll be tempted to show. For the warning continues that, uh, if you did, you are having no reward with your Father in heaven. And in the following sections, Jesus will three times encourage us to know that we can do things secretly because our Father in heaven sees what is done in secret and he will reward us. And that might uh, prompt a whole bunch of questions, such as um, what, what kind of reward, and uh, should we be rewarded at all, and what happens if I don't want to be rewarded for helping people, and if I do these things in the hope and expectation of a reward, isn't that a contradiction of the selfless, other-centered, God-honoring ethos Jesus is attempting to create in me through these very words? Well, they're all very good questions. Let's try to answer some of them. Perhaps a good place to start is knowing what the disciples, as good Jewish men, what they may have already thought about these religious practices. And by this time in history, in Jewish thought, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting were replacing the temple sacrificial system as means by which people thought that they were right with God. Doing this stuff, this righteous stuff, made you righteous, that is to say, right with God, God's friends, justified, as we would say. One uh, Jewish commentator writing centuries beforehand, when the Jews were, were living in exile amongst the Babylonians, he wrote that giving to the poor delivers you from death and keeps you from going into the dark place, that is, hell. Another wrote, prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is giving to the poor, because giving to the poor saves you from death and purges away your sin. And a Pharisee, writing shortly before the time of Christ, wrote, As water extinguishes a blazing fire, so giving to the poor atones for sin. In other words, these people thought that doing this kind of stuff and giving to the poor specifically justified you. It made you right with God. In contrast, here now in the Sermon on the Mount, there isn't anything in Jesus' teaching that may even suggest that giving to the poor makes you right with God or atones for your sins or saves you. No, no, indeed, the, the whole context 
of the Sermon on the Mount is that the disciples are in fact already right with God. They are already saved. There they are, standing on a hill with Jesus, literally in the presence of God. A picture of heaven. And as for being forgiven their sins, well, in next week's section we'll read that we are to pray, forgive us our debts, as we too forgive those who are our debtors. Forgiveness is ours for the asking. No, 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 we're, we're, we're saved by grace through the blood of Christ. Um, we're justified, we're, we're right with God when we just keep on trusting Jesus. Um, but in addition to that, um, and to summarize the teaching of the whole New Testament, um, what God is doing, just to expand it, is, is God works in people's lives so to enable them to believe in Jesus, to be, to be his friends, to be right with him, and then he works in them uh, by the Spirit to enable them to do good works, good works prepared in advance for them to do in the power of the Holy Spirit because they're filled with the Spirit. And when they do those good works, God then rewards them with superabundant generosity. His reward is completely unfair insofar as it is wildly in excess of what we deserve, which is the dark place. Um, so this is extraordinary. Um, what does this reward look like? Well, um, all kinds of answers might be advanced here, and indeed there are probably many right answers. Um, in, in one place in the Gospels, Jesus says that whoever, um, whoever of you has sacrificed for the sake of me, for the sake of the Gospel, Jesus says, God will reward you, God will pay you back a hundred times as much in this life and in the life to come, eternal life, Mark 10.30. We, we may already... Um, also, in addition to that, understand the reward as being joy and satisfaction. Uh, as we've sung about in just the, the last song, that my, 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 my reward is the joy of knowing I'm serving you. My food, Jesus said, is to do the work of him who sent me and to finish the task. Um, joy, satisfaction, peace. It is pleasurable to do the right thing. But here it would seem that what Jesus probably overall has in mind is something that he also speaks about frequently in his teaching, a heavenly reward, a, a reward reserved for us in heaven, reserved for the next age. And this is one reason why I wanted to present you with my clumsy literal translation here, because the phrase in your pew Bible, no reward from your Father in heaven, um, that's an unusual construction in Greek. It isn't the usual word for from, but rather it's the Greek word para, from which we get parallel, meaning with. Um, arguably, a better translation may be um, uh, uh, no reward with your father in heaven. And if you look, quite a few English translations go that route. In other words, when you do the right thing, as described now by Jesus, you will have a reward. Where is it? Well, actually, it's with your Father in heaven. Spatially speaking, you go to it rather than it comes to you. And also in verse 4, as we'll see later, Jesus teaches, Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will, future tense, re reward you. 
um, suggesting that, temporarily speaking, you wait for it rather than it comes now. Do we deserve such rewards? Well, categorically, no. But God is generous and kind, and he thinks that we need to know that we will be rewarded in the end, and it would be dangerous to contradict him because it's always dangerous to contradict him. So clearly we need to know that we will be rewarded. Um, Enough of this. Let's move on to today's teaching, verse 2. Whenever you might do mercy giving, do not sound the trumpets before you, just as the hypocrites are doing in the synagogues and on the streets, so that they may, might be glorified by the people. Amen, I say to you, they are receiving their reward. Uh, mercy giving. Um, translated um, giving to the needy in the Pew Bible, what's being translated is a single word derived from the Greek word for mercy. Traditionally, it was translated in English Bibles as almsgiving, or, or, or giving alms. Alms being an English word taken directly from the Greek word for mercy. So let's firstly observe that being a follower of Jesus includes charitable giving. Giving to the poor mercy things. If you believe in Jesus, you can afford to be generous. It's whenever you might give, not if ever you might give. Giving to the needy is assumed for every follower of Christ. Secondly, let's observe that Jesus has a particular group of people in mind as his anti-heroes. A a particular group of people who exemplify the opposite of what it is that he wishes his disciples to do. And he refers to these people as hypocrites. Um, It's a word that's frequently on Jesus' lips in Matthew's Gospel, appearing 13 times in that book, and only another five times in the entire rest of the Bible. As an ancient Greek word, the word hypocrite means stage actor, or occasionally interpreter. In other words, it had the sense of somebody speaking somebody else's lines, um, assuming a role for the sake of pretending. Jesus uses the word of anyone who creates a false appearance. When people come to trap Jesus, pretending to be earnest in their request for information or sincere in their desire for his opinion, but actually trying to trap him and catch him by his words, this intentional duplicity made them the definitive examples of hypocrisy. But Jesus also uses the word routinely, not just of intentional duplicity, but of unintentional duplicity, a life not thought through. Um, uh, And in fact, usually Jesus labels as hypocritical any action that is actually somehow intended to be pious, intended to be an act that serves God, but is actually really self-serving, an act that serves one's own interest and position. And so the question is, in some ways, which audience are you playing for? And when Jesus uses this terrible word, he almost always has the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in mind, a group of men who 
uh, were uh, considered um, the essence of respectability in their age. And yet Jesus sees them as exercising a ministry of hypocrisy, hypocrisy as a way of life, hypocrisy as the form and substance of their religion. The yeast of the Pharisees, as Jesus calls it uh, in Mark 8, is that highly contagious infection, more infectious than coronavirus. It's, it's this infection whereby we start doing things for the sake of the opinion of other human beings rather than out of a humble concern for the glory and honor of God. So then Jesus describes here in this section how it was that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law generally gave to the poor publicly, making a, a show of the whole thing in order to be seen by others. And um, the Bible scholar Kenneth E. Bailey describes the institution of begging, uh, which we may not be familiar with, uh, but he says this is how it works. In traditional Middle Eastern society, beggars are a recognized part of the community and are understood to be offering services to it. Every pious person is expected to give to the poor. The traditional beggar sits in a public place and challenges passers-by with, give to God, give to God. When the beggar receives money, whatever the amount, he usually stands up and in a loud voice proclaims the giver to be the most noble person he has ever met and invokes God's grace and blessing on the giver, on his family, on his friends and associates, on his going out and on his coming in, and many other good things as well. So you get this loud public blessing and affirmation when you drop a coin in the slot. And that might, uh, a vending machine uh, of uh, social respectability, that might sound a little bit funny to us. But in an honor-shame culture, to be publicly honored has many material benefits. It's money in the bank. So then, the person who gives in this way looks generous, but actually it's just another transaction, a commodity has been bought, and that is the highly useful commodity of public recognition and respectability. That's why it's hypocrisy. It looks like an act that serves God, but it's actually just an act that serves the actor. That is why Jesus can say they are receiving their reward, because they are. They're giving, getting, getting right, right then what they've paid for. And without doubt, the contemporary church continues to be a place of precisely the same temptation, a, pl a place which can be full of the same hypocrisy if we're not very, very careful, because it can be very, very useful from time to time to appear to be the very model of Christian piety and respectability. Um, so Jesus teaches us, verse 3, But when you do mercy giving, do not, know, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your mercy giving might be hidden. And your Father, the one who sees that which is hidden, will pay you back. Well, in contrast, Jesus now offers us a figure of speech 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing in order to poetically paint a picture of giving that if it's, that if it's not actually anonymous, at least it's discreet. It's an act that doesn't draw attention to itself. And it may also answer for us the question, which audience are you playing for? Because not only in this act of giving are we not playing for the congratulations of other people, we're even guarding ourselves from self-congratulation because uh, if your left hand doesn't know what your right hand has done, you can't clap. I'm not sure that's what Jesus meant. But, but it's, it's an idea, isn't it? It, it? it guards us even really from self-congratulation. Jesus concludes, And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Um, Jesus uh, routinely refers to God in the Sermon on the Mount. He, ref- he routinely refers to God um, in this sermon, which is exclusively for the ears of his disciples. He says to his disciples, He calls God your father. This is the fourth time out of 16 times Jesus is going to do this in this sermon. Yes, Jesus is teaching us to call God father, Abba, Daddy. But more than that, actually, really astonishingly, Jesus is inviting us to call his father our father. For in chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is telling his disciples, My Father is your Father when you believe in me. And so to be known by God, to be known by God as his child, alongside with Jesus, the eternal Son of God. That's, that is most assuredly to be known by God as his child is to be safe. In fact, it's to be as safe as houses, even in the presence of Mrs. Walker. Or was it Miss Walker? Yeah, hard to say. Um, to be a child of God is to be safe. It's to be saved. And this is extraordinary. When we put our faith in Christ... We are entering into God himself. Jesus said on that day, you will understand that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and I am in you also. We are being invited into the eternal relationship between God the Son and God the Father, filled with God the Holy Spirit inside of God. You can't get a much safer place than being inside God. Well, We've already considered the idea of being rewarded, and our conclusion was that Jesus has in mind primarily a heavenly future tense reward. But the words here actually do suggest a secondary, earthly, now reward. Because to be paid back, as it is literally, strongly suggests that God will cover us when we are generous, because we're safe. And that is the explicit lesson of other places, many other places in the New Testament, that you cannot outgive God. Generosity, ultimately, is putting the needs of others before our own. When we do that, God will cover us, looking after others. As he looks after us, we look after others, and he will look after us. 
So actually, we, we finish where we started. If you are a Christian, you can afford to be generous because God will cover you. That is a lesson, I think, that Jesus intends, but it's not the primary lesson. The primary lesson, as, as, as we remember, is that we avoid the trap of hypocrisy. And because we know that the primary, primary lesson is to avoid hypocrisy, we can say with confidence that this isn't primarily a lesson about methodology, about how to do your giving, and, and the reason I make that distinction is that it's easy to read, read Christ's words here as a description of methodology and to take away the principle that all giving must be anonymous. It would be easy to think that. After all, doesn't Jesus say, verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret? But no, we remember that that phrase is in service to the primary lesson. And the primary lesson is do not act like hypocrites. Do not do it in front of others so as to be seen by them. This is not about methodology. It is about motivation. We take Christ's lesson on board when we look not so much at how we give, but rather at why we give. What's going on in our hearts? One reason for pointing this out is that anonymous giving is not always possible. Um, often it is, often it isn't. Indeed, if I was going to take a concrete stance on this text, then I would have a cast-iron escape clause for every time I saw a beggar on the street. I would be obliged to say to him or her, I'm sorry, but my religion forbids me from helping you because there are many people around who might see me giving money to you. Jesus has commanded me to only give in secret. And therefore, as that is not possible, Jesus has commanded me not to, not to help you. And if I did that, I would be a hypocrite. <laughs> Thank you, Christian. Yes. Um, furthermore, there actually have been many times when I've given money to people or to causes in order that I might be seen by others. I've done that. It's not unknown for me to tell other people which charities and mission organizations and not-for-profit organizations I support. Occasionally it's because I want others to support them too. I'm promoting that ministry. Occasionally it is because I want, to see, I want them to see how I apply the teachings of Jesus. And very occasionally or very frequently it might be because I want to shame them into giving too. Some of these motivations might be good. Others of these motivations might be bad or even sad. It is Christ's job to judge me, not yours, not even mine. But in prayer, in the presence of Jesus, I police my own attitudes and motivations. If I give to the needy, if in prayer I realize in the light of this text that I give to the needy in, or anything else it might be, Anything else it might be, if I do that in order to raise other people's opinion of me, in other words, to be a religious show-off, and to reap the benefits of status, belonging, whatever it might be that come with that, then I now stand corrected by the text. Secret, anonymous, discreet giving is not the only way of giving, but it is now in Jesus' hands the test case. 
Am I willing to give in situations where I will get no glory, no thanks, no recognition whatsoever? Humanly speaking. Or I can ask that theologically. Am I being merciful to others because I've experienced and I know the mercy of God myself? Am I loving others because I've experienced and I know the love of Christ myself? Am I being gracious because I have, be, I have experienced and been transformed by the grace of God in Christ Jesus? If we claim to follow Christ, if we claim to have met God and to have experienced his love for ourselves, if we desire nothing now except to live for his glory and his glory alone, these should actually be very easy questions to answer. In summary, in Christ... We can afford to be generous. We should look at our attitude in giving. Are we happy to do it in such manner that God and God alone gets all of the glory? Do we know that God who sees what is done in secret will reward us? Well, it is wise and safe to answer in the affirmative to all of those questions because God does indeed look after those who look after others. Our Father in heaven will reward us. To God be the glory both now and always through Jesus Christ, his Son, our Savior. Amen.